0: Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. the wonderful things he was doing. Well, good evening. My name's Rod. If you
1: are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, We're moving through this section of Luke's Gospel. Come to this section tonight that we're looking at, which is really short, but it packs a punch because there's lots of implications that flow out of this. So I'm going to pray for us now. Please join me that God will help us as we think about his word together, that we might grow in our understanding. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening. We thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge it's a great gift because through it we hear you, the creator and sustainer of all things, speak to us. For we hear your voice in the pages of scripture and we pray that your spirit might apply your words to our hearts and minds tonight. Help us to think about this interaction that Jesus has and the implications for our souls. We ask that you would challenge us where we need challenging, that you'd comfort us and encourage us where we need that too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the fight for freedom, whether it's between nations or internally, like what is going on at the moment in Hong Kong, is often seen as a radical kind of fight. It can involve violence, sadly, so often. But even when the protests are peaceful, there is a call for great change. There's a desire that oppression be thrown off, that emancipation finally come. A Famous example of this is the civil rights movement in the United States during the 1960s, which saw the rise of some famous leaders and orators like Martin Luther King. You may know something of his famous speech, Uh, given on the 28th of August 1963, where he stood in Washington, D.C., at the Lincoln Memorial, and spoke to 250,000 people who had marched down for the sake of civil rights in that country. And, of course, it's a famous speech with stirring lines. Let me give you just part of it. He said, in part, "'I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up "'and live out its true meaning.'" of its creed. We hold that these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day be judged not on the colour of their skin but on the content of their character. I have a dream that when freedom rings out, when it rings from every city, every hamlet, every state, every part of this country, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant will be able to join hands and sing the words of that famous Negro spiritual song, free at last, free at last, my God almighty, we are free at last. Now they're stirring words, this fight for freedom. And in the passage we're going to look at tonight, Jesus is not speaking to some giant crowd like Luther, Martin Luther King was that day. He's speaking to a small group of people inside a synagogue, and yet Jesus' words have echoed down through the centuries. They have powerful implications for all people, including ourselves here tonight. And so I want to consider the question this evening, how does Jesus bring radical freedom? How does Jesus bring radical freedom? You see in this passage in Luke 13 that we're considering, there's this woman who is bound, as we've heard, who is freed by Jesus. But it's indicative of a greater freedom that Jesus is calling his followers to, which we need to grasp. And so we want to consider this question. And the first answer to this question is this, through provocative compassion. Jesus is going to bring radical freedom through provocative compassion. Notice how the passage starts again from verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Well, to this point in his Gospel, Luke has frequently presented Jesus as teaching in synagogues, in Luke chapter 4, in Luke 6, various points. A synagogue was a gathering or an assembly of Jewish people that had come together to worship God, to hear the law and the prophets read, to offer prayers. It's thought that the synagogue actually dated back to the time of the exile, when Israel was forced out of the land to Babylon, and the people had to meet. They didn't have the temple to go to, and so they would gather each week. And that continued as they came back to the promised land, and there was a synagogue like a church in every local community. But not only is the location established in verse 10, but also the day, and this is critical. You see, the setting is the Sabbath, the day of rest, when God's people were to focus on him. So just as Christians gather on a Sunday, like we're doing now so Jews gathered on a Sabbath or the Saturday. And it's the timing of Christ's actions that are going to cause a big stir in this incident. But firstly, I want you to notice the situation of the woman. Crippled for 18 years, bent over, unable to straighten up. And this back injury, is, if I can call it that, has had a spiritual source. We're told in both verse 11, she has a spirit of sickness. In verse 16, that she's been bound by Satan So there's a spiritual cause, which is not detailed for us here. Now, it's not necessary to assume some form of demonic possession. There's no record in this passage that Jesus actually casts out an evil spirit. But certainly, her disability is coming from a spiritual cause. What we do need to assume, though, is that this affliction would have caused lots of problems for her, not only her mobility, but her social status. You see, if you were somebody who was afflicted with something like this, then people would often look at you as if that must be your fault. As we saw last week in the first section of Luke 13, people often attributed suffering with God's punishment upon a person. Not always rightly so, as we saw last week, and Jesus corrected that. But it would have been easy for many in the synagogue to look down on this woman. She would have been on the fringes of society, somebody that found herself always on the edges. She would not have wanted to be up front for that very reason. And so she, you can imagine her probably hanging up the back of the synagogue. And so she wouldn't have wanted to be pushed into the centre of things. But that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 12. We're told that when he saw her, he called her forward. Now, no doubt many people had looked past her like she was invisible amongst them that day, but Jesus notices her and decides there and then that he's going to heal her. Now, this is provocative compassion. I mean, Jesus could have done this after everyone had finished at the service and gone home. He could have done it the next day when it wasn't the Sabbath. But he brings her out in front of everyone in the synagogue, particularly the spiritual leaders in the synagogue, and makes a big statement. He's going to heal her in front of them. And it's amazing, surely, for this woman to hear the words that she hears in verse 12. Before he's even placed his hands on her and healed her, he announces that he is going to set her free. He's going to set her free from her infirmity. What an amazing word. Somebody for 18 long years, she must have wondered if such a day would ever come. And this public healing was going to ensure that everybody knew that her affliction was gone and they would know the cause of it, that Jesus had done this. Is it any wonder that when Jesus does place her hands or in verse 13, she bursts into praise? She's just so thankful for what has happened. I think it's hard for us to comprehend just how great her joy and thankfulness would have been at that moment, to be freed, to hear those words, you are set free, and then to experience that. But there's more to Jesus and his healing at this point, openly on the Sabbath, than simply freeing this woman, as wonderful as that is. He shows great compassion on her. But Jesus is also using this as a teaching moment for this whole group of people. And that brings me to my second answer as to how Jesus brings freedom. Not only through provocative compassion, but through pointing to the true purpose of the Sabbath, by pointing to the purpose of the Sabbath. So notice what happens next. Jesus has done this amazing miracle in front of everyone, and then this discussion unfolds from verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and you lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free from her affliction, be set free on the Sabbath day from what had bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Notice the different reactions here to this miracle. On the one hand, the synagogue leader is indignant and those who support him. Indignant is a kind way of talking about frustrated anger. I mean, he's angry at Jesus that he's done this deliberately on the Sabbath in front of everyone. It's obviously a threat to his authority. It's he thinks it's wrong. He reacts. He's incensed. And we get this amazing situation whereby he doesn't rebuke Jesus as you might think he would because he's not happy about what Jesus has just done. Instead, he berates all the people who are gathered in the synagogue. It's their fault, he seems to make out. They're the ones that have come expecting to be healed on the Sabbath somehow. And so they have caused Jesus to do this and this problem now arises. And so here are all these people, this woman who is praising God for being healed after 18 years, the people in the synagogue who no doubt were stunned and awed and in amazement and thankful to God as well. When do you see this every day? And in the midst of their joy, they are told off for coming to the synagogue expecting a healing on the Sabbath. I mean, what is going on here with this leader? Is he so blind to the joy of the people? Why is he so angry? Well, he's indirectly accusing Jesus of working on the Sabbath, isn't he? And the argument sprung from the law. He was trying to be obedient to the Old Testament law, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10. Moses recorded, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall... Not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. It's comprehensive. But in order to keep this law so that it would not be broken, the Pharisees had devised a whole precise code of additional regulations. 39, in fact different kinds of work which they saw as prohibited. And if you avoided these 39 kinds of work, well, then you could feel good that you were obeying the law. And these kinds of work included healing. And so for the synagogue leader and his supporters, Jesus had broken the Sabbath. And he'd done it there in his synagogue and it seemed that he wanted to reassert his authority by lecturing the people. And no doubt lecturing Jesus indirectly but Jesus offers a scathing response doesn't he he comes out of the gate strong but Jesus has something even stronger to say back in verses 15 and 16 you have to remember this man would have been considered the spiritual leader of the community everyone at this synagogue would have looked up to him as the leader that knows God's law that um, knows how to obey it and teach it properly and Jesus announces that he is a complete hypocrite (laughs) and those with him are. You hypocrites. The breathtaking truth was that their additional laws allowed them to untie their animals so that they could have water and not die on the Sabbath, but somehow Jesus was not allowed to untie or unbind this woman who had been afflicted for 18 years. So Christ makes it clear that human need must take precedence over these man-made laws. Elsewhere in Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus had already stated his priority in this regard. He asserted that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, this leader claimed to love the law, but he did not love God's people. He seemed not to care for this woman and all that she faced in the way he responded I mean, his lack of compassion is stunning. Here's a fellow Israelite, a daughter of Abraham, as Jesus puts it, who is praising God for her physical freedom, and yet all the synagogue leader can think about is imposing spiritual bondage on her and all the people present. or sometimes God's word, his laws, get applied in this way, even in the modern day. I conducted a funeral back in 2005 uh, for a lady um, who wasn't even connected with the church I was serving at in Chatswood. And um, they only wanted to involve a minister and to have a Christian funeral because this deceased woman had grown up in her childhood, at least, in a church. Uh, Her daughters were not interested in not being part of a church and neither had their mother who had died for some time. And as we went and met to plan the funeral service together, the thing that the daughter wanted to tell me was how her mother had been brought up in a very strict Christian household when she was young. And the thing that they were most keen on doing right was obeying the Sabbath. And what that meant was that on a Sunday, you stayed indoors all day with the blinds down, no sun, don't go outside unless you were going to church. It wasn't just a no work day, it was a no fun day. And the lasting impression that had been passed down as in the legacy in their family was that Christianity was about not doing something on a Sunday. Well, it was a sad conversation, I've got to say. And now maybe you'll find that story really strange, but I want to say to you that was typical of many Christian families in Australia right up to the 1960s and in most Western countries around the world because it was seen as a mark of holiness in how you obeyed the Sabbath law. It was often preached as such from the pulpit in churches around the country. Christians were to avoid all activity on a Sunday, it was thought. You were allowed perhaps to read a book preferably the Bible, or you could sleep, but not much more. And I want to say to you, if it's not clear to you already, that is legalism. A Sabbath was not intended as a restriction, as a burden, as a weight for people. It was designed for our good. It was meant to enable us to rest from our work because our bodies need recovery, but even more that we might give attention to God and our relationship with him. Certainly it's good to slow down. But we'd created all these rules, much as the Jews had in the first century. And you see, Christ's miracle confronted the established religious system of Judaism. Jesus, through his words and actions, turns the searchlight, his gaze, upon this cold legalism in a Jewish practice. And it's hardly surprising then that his opponents are humiliated in verse 17. I mean, what Jesus says as he says it just seems so common sense, so thoughtful and compassionate, unlike their synagogue leader. And so is it any wonder too that the people are just delighted can feel the burden lifting off? We love this Jesus guy. But like the fig tree failed... To bear fruit in last week's passage, Jewish religious practice had become barren. The Sabbath day was the epitome of Jewish religious practice. It was a gift from God. It was full of spiritual meaning. And yet, it had become so bound, so encrusted with traditions that it had become lifeless. It had become painful for the people. I think we understand the idea of spiritual bind when we think about physical binding and the pain that we can sense. You know, foot binding in China was common for many centuries. It's said to have been inspired by a 10th century court dancer named Yao Niang who bound her feet into the shape of the new moon and entranced Emperor Li Yu by dancing on her toes inside a golden lotus Don't know whether that's truth or fiction, but um, it sounds impressive. But gradually, somehow, the other court ladies um, took up this foot binding, making it an unlikely but very painful status symbol that was then forced on many generations of women. How did they go about this, foot binding? Well, first, the feet were plunged into hot water to soften them. The toenails were clipped really short. Then the feet were massaged and oiled in preparation for every single one of the toes except the big toes being broken and flattened against the bottom of the foot. And next, the arch of the foot was strained and bent almost double. And then finally, the feet were bound with these silk ribbons or strips. And over time, the wrappings became tighter, the shoes became smaller, as the heel and the sole basically crushed together. And after two years, the process was generally complete. And once a foot had been crushed and bound in this way, the shape could not be reversed easily, not without significant new pain. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of description, that just makes me cringe. It's like nails down a chalkboard. And we feel the physical pain of being bound physically that way. But this physical binding is a picture of the spiritual pain, the ties that many Jews found themselves in over the Sabbath. It was not just that Jesus thought the synagogue ruler you know, and his supporters were a little too rigorous in their following through on the Sabbath. It wasn't that they'd just gone a little bit overboard this week, but it was that they had the wrong idea altogether about the Sabbath. They had no idea what it was meant for. You see, back in Luke chapter 6, which we looked at a couple of years ago as we were working through Luke in first term then, Jesus had made a revolutionary statement. Luke chapter 6, verse 5, he had stunned the Pharisees and a whole group of people again speaking at another synagogue when he announced that he, the Son of Man, was Lord of the Sabbath. And now that phrase, Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the one who is brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and is given all authority. Jesus was saying to the people, he is invested with all authority. If there's anyone who knows what the Sabbath is about and can interpret it rightly, it is him. They need to listen to him. And here he is again teaching them in the synagogue what it should be. And it's hard to hear for the leaders because they don't like it. Now, Jesus, when he came, did not come to throw out God's law. He actually says that he comes to fulfil God's law in Matthew 5. And the principle of the Sabbath remained in the New Testament, not only in Jesus' teaching, but especially in the Apostle Paul as he sought to instruct the churches. Colossians 2, Romans 14 There's lots of instruction about the Sabbath while trying to take away the legalistic practices. You see, the word Sabbath, and I want to dwell on this just for a moment so that we're sure about what the essence of the Sabbath is. The word Sabbath does not mean Saturday, it does not mean Sunday, it means resting, it means ceasing. It's all about stopping before God. And in a famous passage in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus stated this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So The first thing to see from this passage is that It's Jesus who gives us spiritual rest. If we are to have true spiritual rest, it's from him. It's the gospel that brings freedom, faith in God's son. And so I want to say to you this evening, if you are weary and burdened because you've been trying to earn your salvation, you've been trying to be good enough to please God, operating by some code that you have in your head or that somebody else has given you, then please come to Jesus. The yoke of Jesus is easy, we're told. The burden of the gospel is light. It's not about your performance, it's about Christ's death on your behalf, his payment of your sin, and his resurrection, which offers you new life on the third day. But this freedom is not a license to sin, it's not, I do whatever I want now. There is God's word and his principles to live by, absolutely. And notice even in this passage, we're still to take on a yoke. I mean, a yoke is a symbol of subjection. You put it on cattle or oxen so that they can plow the field for you. We have a yoke to bear, but it's the lordship of Jesus. He's in charge of our life. But we're told that his ways are not burdensome, that he offers abundant life, life to the full. He brings God's grace And secondly, the rest for our souls, which Jesus promised here, also points forward. It wasn't just about the Sabbath day as the people lived it then. The Sabbath was only ever a signpost that pointed forward to something much greater. It wasn't an end in itself. It was pointing forward to our eternal rest with God. You see, that rest existed in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had perfect relationship and rest with God. But then it is marred by sin. Sin enters as we turn away and rebel. And so then we live in a fallen world where humanity is forced to struggle in a world that is messed up. And then God instructs through his word that there will be a day of rest. There's a hope that we look forward to a better day where this burdensome life of work is finally done away with. And so the people would rest on the seventh day. But then later, as they went out into the wilderness, there was the promise of a promised land. Something that had first been said to Abraham is then fulfilled under Joshua. And they finally get to go into this promised land. But it it was not going to bring the rest they desired either. It was still a signpost pointing forward to the Messiah, Jesus coming finally. He was the one that was going to deliver rest as he died on the cross, bore our sin and offered us new life. And it's only through Jesus that we then look forward ultimately to rest in heaven, eternal rest with God back in perfection when sin has been dealt with once and for all. Heaven is the return to Eden that we seek. It's to share in God's rest as he always intended. And so what was lost through the fall is regained at the cross and enjoyed finally in heaven. That brings me to a third answer. Not only do we need to understand the radical freedom that Jesus offers as he unpacks the Sabbath for us, but we need to see more widely the principle that he's applying here to see the freedom of God's grace in all of life. Christ gives us freedom through showing us the freedom of God's grace. You see, the Sabbath is indicative of a much wider problem of legalism. From day one in the church in the first century, there has been a battle not to be drawn back under the slavery of trying to earn our way with God. This was Paul's overwhelming concern so often as he wrote letters to the local churches that he'd helped plant. His letter to the Galatians in particular is like this all the way through. The big theme throughout Galatians is that these people who had largely been Gentiles that had come out of pagan practices where they'd been told they had to earn their way to heaven by doing all kinds of things, they'd suddenly discovered the grace of Jesus and it was astounding. They were amazed that there was freedom, that it was simply trusting in Christ and his finished work and there was nothing they had to do. And yet then some Jewish believers came in who had not fully understood God's grace and they tried to put the people back under the law. They said, yes, you've got Jesus, that's great, but you need to add to Jesus the following of certain Jewish laws, circumcision, the Sabbath, whatever it might be in different scenarios. And the poor people were burdened and enslaved again. And so Paul is railing against this so often in his letters, and Galatians is just full of it. And by the time he gets to chapter 5 of Galatians, he's really sort of pulling all of his discussions and arguments to a head. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, "...it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You're trying to be justified by law and you have been alienated from Christ." You have fallen away from grace. They'd become burdened. They'd become enslaved again. Maybe you've seen the 1984 movie The Killing Fields. Uh, It was used to awaken the world to the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia from 1975 to 1979. It details the story of a Cambodian man, Dith Pran, who was an interpreter for some American journalists who were working in Phnom Penh when the Khmer Rouge arrived in April of 75. One of the more harrowing scenes in the movie is him trying to protect the Americans that he'd worked with who were under threat, almost giving up his own life in doing so. But you see... The American journalists and most Westerners were later evacuated safely from Cambodia, but people like Diff Pran had to stay behind and deal with struggles through the brutal regime. The communist group's radical policies actually led to the death of 1.7 million people in that country, many of them executed But many millions were enslaved. When they arrived in Phnom Penh, they drove everybody out of the city and enforced them into slavery as farm laborers, sent them back out of the fields, and many of them died of hunger, of diseases, of overwork. And the sites where their bodies were just unceremoniously disposed of became known as the killing fields. Now, I tell you, the terrible irony of this situation was that as the Khmer Rouge arrived in April of 1975, many people celebrated their arrival. They saw them as liberators. They'd lived under a number of dictators to that point that had enslaved the people in different ways for years. They thought, finally, here are people coming to set us free. How wrong they were. What a terrible outcome followed. You see here in Galatians 5 Paul is comparing the Jewish law to a yoke of slavery in comparison to Christ our liberator who brings the gospel of grace. And as we apply this and conclude tonight I guess I want to say to you that anything that leads you to placing your trust your sense of assurance of salvation in anything additional to knowing Jesus by faith alone is leading you away from the truth. He's leading you away from God's righteousness that he has gifted you in his son. And I want to say that many churches today add things in and say, yes, you've got the gospel, there's Jesus, but you need to do these other things to be sure that you're saved. And so some churches will say, well, you can only be saved through reading the King James Version of the Bible. This is the only true version. All the others are corrupt. It's even better than the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures, as if it landed from heaven. And so unless you read this one, then you cannot be sure that you're right with God. Or some will say, our church is the only church that has the one true baptism. And so unless you've been baptised in our church, you cannot be certain of your salvation. You need to come and be baptised again. Only at our church can you be sure that you've been forgiven. And then other churches will say, well, look, you need Jesus, but you need also clear evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life to be sure that you're going to heaven. And the only clear evidence of the Holy Spirit is that you might speak in tongues. And so if you have not spoken in tongues, you cannot be sure that you're saved. And we need to pray for you to make sure that evidence becomes apparent. Or others will say, well, you must come to our church and you need to follow our traditions. You need to confess your sins to a priest. You need to offer certain prayers ritually, regularly, or you cannot be sure that you're right with God. All of these things are things that undermine the truth of the gospel. They're Jesus plus some man-made law or idea that is added to faith in Christ alone. And all of those things, just like strict Sabbath-keeping, and other Old Testament laws that became recurring legalisms in the first century church are a huge problem, stumbling block for so many people. Now you might say to me, look, (laughs) none of those four things that you've mentioned um, have been a struggle in my life. I know those things are not true, so they're not a concern for me. Praise God if that's the case. That's wonderful. But let me push a little bit deeper. In a group of people this size tonight, there'll be those here who are not sure of their right standing with Jesus today because of some other code that somebody's given them or something that they've placed upon themselves. They come to church thinking, well, you know, I haven't prayed enough this week. I didn't help that person that I could have on Tuesday. I haven't read my Bible each day and so I know that God's unhappy with me. I'm, um, you know, I'm not in a right standing with God. I haven't done these things. And there's this burden that weighs on them the whole time. They're never sure if they're right with God because they're looking at their performance and it just doesn't stack up. Let me say, if that's you tonight, I've got wonderful news (laughs) because Jesus offers radical freedom. You don't need to do those things. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, you're no closer or further away today or tomorrow than any other day of your life because it does not depend on you. It depends on Jesus and his perfect performance on your behalf, that he came and lived a sinless life and then bore your sin and then was raised again, that your shortcomings were dealt with once and for all. Right standing with God, it cannot be earned, even in part. It's simply received by faith. It's a gift. Christ's righteousness given to us. I want to say to you tonight, the biggest burden in our world today is not racism, although that's a huge one. It's not the threat of war, although that's massive. It's the burden of every creature, every person wanting to relate rightly to their creator and feeling like they have to earn their way. That there's some ladder of achievement or they can never be sure that they'll ever be forgiven, that they'll ever go to heaven. And Jesus comes along and says, Let me take that burden off you. You can't do it and you don't have to. I've done it. This is freedom. This is radical freedom. It's wonderful news. Martin Luther King said, free at last, free at last, God almighty, free at last. We can say that truly if we've come to trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. In him there is freedom and in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so clear that in Christ we have one who is so compassionate, full of grace and truth, who comes and shows us that he is the perfect substitute who can lay down his life for us. We thank you that in him we can have a right standing, not because of anything we have done or will ever do, but because of Jesus and his perfection. We thank you for giving your son to us, Help us to keep trusting in him, throwing ourselves on his mercy, depending completely on him and nothing else. We ask it in Christ's name.